Hello and welcome to History in Reverse, a father-daughter science fiction podcast. Today we're talking about Brave New World. Hello and welcome to History in Reverse. Today we're talking about Brave New World by Aldous Huxley. Aldous Huxley. My name is Caroline, and here with me is my father, Richie. Hello. All right, and we're talking about a classic, so we're actually starting this year. This is our first podcast of the year, right? No, second. Is it? Oh, we did, we did the Roundup the podcast, right. yeah. So now we're moving on. Um, if you've been following our podcast, basically what we do is every few months we read a book. We read a book and sit and uh, discuss it. Um, the first batch of books that we did were Strange Aliens. That was the theme. And then we did a sort of roundup podcast about it, which was the last one in the feed, where we talked about all the different books and sort of compared the um, literary merits across <laughs> across the right, century. Right. Um, and now we're moving on to dystopias, which is a great uh, subgenre of science fiction. Um, and we're starting with one of the classics, Brave New World, uh, which I'm sure everyone has read. And I've read a few. I read when I was much younger. I've read it before also. Yeah. yeah. And the interesting thing at this time is that I listened to the audiobook. I think you did too, Yeah, right? I did too, yeah. This is the first book that I've listened to the audiobook without having like read the text very recently. Because um, the only other audiobooks I've listened to are the A Song of Ice and Fire books because I have a problem. Mm. And, yes, you do. Uh, and I actually found it quite difficult to follow the audiobook. But you and I reviewed the characters... I got a lot of the characters confused from just listening mm. to the audiobook, but I have actually read the text before. Um, so before we jump into Brave New World, I know you, look, you looked up some history stuff. Right, so I want to talk a little bit about history mm. of, of dystopias and stuff. So one interesting thing is uh, the paper copy of Brave New, Brave New World that we have has an introduction by Christopher Hitchens. Mm -hmm. And in it, he mentions that Aldous Huxley was actually a teacher of George Orwell, mm -hmm. which is kind of funny. And... There was actually a book written earlier um, in 1920s um, that kind of started the genre of, of this kind of futuristic dystopias. And it was called We, mm -hmm. as, in, as You and Me. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was written by a Russian named Yevgeny Zaymatin. Mm -hmm. I think that's how I pronounce it. It was written <laughs> in 1920. And I read it actually prior. Yeah, you were reading it for something else. <clears throat> and... I found it a, a slug. It was was kind of hard to read, and we were, you know, when we were discussing it, our book discussion group, we were wondering whether this was the translation, or or just the writing was bad. <laughs> One thing that he did in that particular book was like he threw random math terms mm -hmm. that had nothing to do with anything, and it just seemed very strange. Mm -hmm. Orwell later in his life wrote an essay criticizing Huxley for. Brave New World being too derivative of, of this book, We. Right. Well, you were telling me about the plot of We, and it sounds very, very similar. Yes. Right? Like, they, they have a sort of civilized area, and then the uncivilized area, you said, beyond the wall, right? Right. And, right. But that that's... Uh, so I guess that would be the 1920s, you said? Right, 1920s. And Brave New World was written in 1932. Okay. So what about utopias, dystopias? Explain. So, yeah. So, I mean, broadly speaking, we're, we're starting to read dystopias, and... The idea of a utopia, I'm going to go back to like my college philosophy classes. It was like, it's like this sort of ancient idea of a, a perfect society. I think the fascination with utopias is that they so easily border on dystopia because of what we value as individuals, uh, particularly I think freedom and free will being things that 
a utopia, by sort of by nature of being a utopia, can't necessarily have. And then dystopias, dystopias appear in a few different ways. So we have the dystopia here in Brave New World, and as we go through um, the, the next year or so, and we're reading other dystopias, well, I'm sure we'll see different examples, but other famous dystopia would be like 1984, right. um, The Hunger Games is a recent dystopia series, right. and usually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say usually, I'm not sure if this is entirely true, usually dystopias are more about like an oppressive government that's like very controlling and whatever, you know, is evil for some way, but it's like clearly evil. Brave New World is sort of interesting because it's that utopia that borders on dystopia thing. Where, and I think one of the questions we're going to get to during this podcast is why, why do we consider this a dystopia right. as opposed to a utopia? Right. And the, the fascination between dystopia and utopia comes from the fact that they are so similar in a lot of ways, even though they're supposed to be opposites. You know, utopia is supposed to be perfect. Dystopia is supposed to be terrible. So do you want to get into the... Uh, you want to just talk about the plot, roughly, or the, the main characters? Yeah, well, let's, let's talk through the plot and as the characters come up, because the plot's not actually that complicated. Which is interesting. So one of the upshots of listening to the audiobook was that I realized how long it took them to really get to the main plot. It takes two hours before we meet Linda. Right. So the the beginning of it, I guess they describe. They want to give you the sense of what the society is like. Right. Uh, in this world. So it's a third person narration. We're not dealing with close point of view. We're not dealing with right. any first person stuff like that. It's your kind of classic third person uh, narration throughout. And. Yeah, we just start with like sort of a few different characters. There's Lenina, right? Um, who's Bernard. Bernard. So who? So who's Lenina? Right. So Lenina is is this nice girl, who who works in the hatcheries. So the just to step back a little bit. So the world he describes in this book is basically humans are no longer born of 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 the mothers. Mm -hmm. Excuse Was my it? French. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, they hatched in the hatcheries mm -hmm. and they divided into classes of people like alpha, betas, gammas, epsilon, I think is the lowest one. Epsilon's the lowest, yeah. And basically they're raised um, to be conditioned to fit into one of those classes and the idea is that whatever class you're in, you're kind of conditioned and prepared to do particular jobs in a society mm -hmm. and that's exactly what you want to do. Right, because you've been... <laughs> Not, not exactly bred for it, but you've been conditioned, conditioned for it. Right. So I think the conditioning, as in you know Pavlov's dog and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, for example, some things they do for conditioning is the because uh, I think that in the story they tell the story of the, the child that learns something from. Right. They, they they talk about how the whole thing was discovered. Right. Where, I guess at the time the idea of of conditioning while you sleep. Mm -hmm. uh, What's it called in the story? Hypno. Hypno. Hypnopedia. Hypnopedia, right. The idea that as you're sleeping, you hear something repeated to you, and so you internalize that right. as true. And that's one of the main ways that they condition is that they do these repetitions and thousands and thousands of times right. for the children. And a lot of them are these like rhymes. You know, well, also, the, the, even before that, in the hatcheries, they, mm -hmm. when they uh, basically... They, they put, prepare the embryos and kind of manage them as they grow, mm -hmm. uh, as they develop into children, and they add various different things at various points to mm -hmm. make sure that you become a you know alpha or beta or the gamma or right that. exactly. So there's sort of two. There's kind of two ways that they do it. They do, or maybe maybe three. There's sort of the chemical way uh, very early on. There's hypnopedia conditioning, and then there's just like other training and conditioning. 
that comes later. So like like you were just saying, like the chemical stuff, for example, they start with like a hundred of the same or a hundred um, embryos, and they want fifty of them to be epsilons. So they add um, what, like alcohol to their surrogate right. or something. Like it's like they add like some weird thing, and it like stunts. And do you remember the Bokanovsky process? Uh, I do, but do you want to explain the Bokanovsky process? <laughs> right, so the Bokanovsky process was to basically take a single egg or a single embryo mm -hmm. and create, you know, bud, make buds so that you can make, you know, a 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 people mm -hmm. from just a single egg. So it would be essentially all, you know, twi I don't want to call them twins because they're, there's more than two, but yeah. they're all identically. And the max um, number they could get was like 96. Right. I think. Yeah. And so they're all identical. And that actually gets into, into the the way the social ca castes are kind of done because the lower castes in this world have um, like they'll have like a lot of a lot of repetitions, whereas the alphas are all individuals. Right. Which maybe maybe ties into the free will stuff later yeah. on. So th that's kind of like the first part of the story is really spent setting this up and talking about there's this chemical conditioning, there's the hypnopedia, and a lot of the hypnopedic phrases, which I think is really interesting. Um, are like rhymes, you know, a gram is better than a dam, stuff like that. Right, that's right. You know, and they're all like these cutesy little rhymes that the kids learn, you know, everyone belongs to everyone else. Right. Um, stuff like that, that becomes ingrained in them because it's just repeated over and right. over. And I, I thought it was kind of cute, uh, literally device, the way he introduces this is like the, the there's a scene in the hatchery and the class comes to visit mm -hmm. and the director shows them around explaining yeah. what, what happens in different spots. <laughs> well, it's like in, um, what's the, the Lem book you made me read with the, with the ocean? Solaris. So in Solaris, when the main character is just like, you know, the author is like, we need some time, I need some exposition space. And the main character goes and reads a book about history, right, you know? Right. It, was, it was a very interesting uh, literary frame to get right. that exposition right. out. Right. And a, a portion of the beginning of the book is written, but at least from what I could tell from listening to the audiobook, it's sort of written between scenes of the, the hatchery, Lenina, and... Right, he does, a, he does a lot of this cutting away from yeah. one scene to the next, especially in the beginning, you're right. Mm -hmm. So there was the hatchery where the, uh, the director was explaining to the class what different mm -hmm. pieces are. Lenina, who was one of the people who worked there, and she and her friend were, I guess, in the a locker room or something, yeah. some locker room talk about <laughs> dating. And Bernard is, uh, Bernard Marx. Yeah, it's one of the characters. Um, who's kind of, um, has kind of the, I don't want to say hearts for Lenina, but he likes Lenina, he, but he's kind of shy. Yeah, he's kind of weird. <laughs> now, the, 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 because children are made in factories, essentially, there is no... Uh, sex is just basically a, a fun thing mm -hmm. that you do, mm -hmm. and there's nothing to reproduction. Right. Um, so nobody births live children anymore. Right. That's ew. Yeah. And a lot of the population is sterile. One of the things that they do with the chemical conditioning of the right. fetuses is that they uh, sterilize. But then there are some people that aren't sterile, and I couldn't quite figure out why that is. Like right. That takes some, some birth control thing or something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I couldn't quite figure it out. I don't know. It's for funsies. <laughs> So the, so we, yeah, we, st we start the story basically with that information dump on like, this is the world that we're in. Right. And I think one of the things we see throughout the story is that the, this is, this book is much more about the world building than it is about the characters of the plot. Not that the characters in the plot aren't interesting, right. but I think they are subservient to the world, world building. Well, he describes this culture, right? So, and, and this world and 
So one other thing that uh, gets mentioned is uh, soma. You want to explain that? Yes, soma is a drug that, depending on how much of it you take, basically induces um, a euphoria. It's it's like you people call it going on soma holiday. You know, you could take half a gram and like feel good, and take a whole gram and feel much better. You take three grams and like you're basically like asleep, but in like a euphoric state for several hours. It's used as a way for the government to really control people and just to avoid motivate. negative emotions or whatever. Right, and to motivate people. Well, that's true. You know, they get paid in soma tablets a lot, and um, you know it's it's. That's right. A gram is better than a dam. A gram is better than a dam. Every <coughs> that, that, every time someone says the word dam to Lena, she always responds, "A gram is better than a dam." Every single time, it's fantastic. <laughs> Uh, so Bertrand is actually is one of those people who does not like to take soma. He he wants mm -hmm. to be he uh, sometimes miserable and he wants to remain miserable. Mm -hmm. And one of the things <coughs> that is one of the first conversations Lena and her friend um, Fanny Fanny yeah talk about Bernard, and Fanny says, uh, well he's weird. They you know they accidentally put like alcohol in his surrogate when he was in the in the test tube or whatever, and, and I he's think like an alpha minus or something. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's so interesting how. They, because the conditioning is so consistent, mm -hmm. really, across that whenever there is, are these outliers, the immediate explanation is, oh, well, something went wrong in the conditioning process. Like, there must have been something incorrectly right, done. Right, right. Which is a really interesting um, cultural bit, you know, for how the characters react to living in this world. So what are the actual events that happen? So we have Lenina working, and basically what's happening is Everyone belongs to everyone else in the society, so right. the adults, there's no marriage, right. there are no families, and you're expected to have multiple partners at all times, basically. Right. So they, they actually talk about some of the uh, entertainment. It's, I think uh, Huxley was trying to be a little bit funny because like, he made up a bunch of interesting sports yeah. that they would play. So I wrote some down. It was the Riemann surface tennis, obstacle golf, escalator squash. Yeah. And Riemann surface is, is actually a thing in mathematics, so it's, it doesn't even make sense, but it's kind of Is that anything to do with tennis? No, 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 <laughs> no. It's like a surface that is four-dimensional and stuff, so it's, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. Oh. <laughs> and who was Mustafa Mond? He's the controller. Right? The world controller. Yeah. Do you want to explain what that is? Well, I guess he's like the... the he's like the, the president. The president, kind yeah. of, yeah. I mean... So this, this all this, happens in England. Right. It sounds like the... the each region has a like controller because they talk about some other ones mm -hmm. elsewhere. Um, right. I love the name Mustafa Mond, by the way. I think it's great. It's like a great supervillain name. So the other thing they talk about uh, is that the the society they want is stable. They want stability. They don't want really much change. Yeah. They want everybody to be happy. One of the things that's talked about towards the end of the book in that philosophy part um, mm -hmm. that you like is the reason they wanted that stability was because right. they were coming out of a war. Like the nine years. There was war a nine or years war. So what about our Ford? <laughs> I didn't get this. <laughs> you explain. Okay, so throughout the book, you notice they make expressions that sound like religious things, mm -hmm. but they're not. So they talk about, you know, we are in a year, two thousand something of our Ford or after Ford. After Ford, yeah. And oh, they call people your Fordship, mm -hmm. and make sign of a T. What Huxley was doing, he was just referring to Henry Ford and, and basically the, the factory invention and Model T and right. stuff and kind of riffing on that as, as, begin, as that was the beginning of the, 
the modern era mm -hmm. and they do talk um, briefly about there was a nine years war that was really terrible mm -hmm. and after that they decided to implement this kind of system where to, to have stability and happiness for everyone mm -hmm. right yeah. and the important thing about you know this conditioning was that people who were you know betas or deltas or, or epsilons they were happy doing what they were doing because they but just basically bred and conditioned to to just love doing that right and they couldn't see themselves doing anything else mm -hmm. yeah exactly and it sort of removes i guess that goal and kind of the same way they removed religion and stuff is that and the, they removed the family unit is to to remove any extreme emotion that kind right. of seemed to be the idea because right. you don't you don't love any one person enough to like think of them as yours right. for example you don't love any child to think of it as yours like right. that, that concept of the extreme emotions extreme sadness extreme love extreme happiness like those things were all removed so that everyone sort of right. had this sort of happy middle right. and could that could be maintained and be stable so so i guess the the first thing that happens is that bertrand and lenin are, pl are planning a vacation right isn't it bernard isn't that his name bernard the say? bernard yeah yeah you know you're right bernard um yeah so Lena was dating Bernard, so, well, she was Benito dating Hoover, She's Henry with, Foster. I think she was just dating Henry first, right? That was yeah. like, she was only dating the one guy, and her roommates like, you got to get other guys. What are you doing? Like you can't just date the one guy. And Lena is like, all right. So she starts dating Bernard. Bernard's kind of weird, and everyone's like, wow, he's kind of weird. He is kind of weird. Yeah. And they plan this vacation to um, the Savage Reservation. Yeah. Was yeah. it in New Mexico? Yeah. yeah. So they're in England, so I guess they go over to part of the world that they were in. Um, the world they were in, there were like areas allocated that were still like living the, in the old ways, mm -hmm. you know, and there were like vacation spots. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, there's a, it was an interesting thing because when Bernard uh, goes tell his director of, of the hatchery where he works, saying, oh, I'm taking vacation mm -hmm. and we're going to this reservation, mm -hmm. the guy says, oh, yeah, I went there when I was like your age. Yeah. And I was with this girl, and she got lost. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we went sleeping in a tent out in the wilderness, and then she, there was a thunderstorm or something, and she went, she left the, the tent, and we couldn't find her. She got lost, and right. we just told him the story. And he like assumed she was killed by the savages because right. they could never find her. Oh, yeah. she died somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, because like, this is like the thing about the reservation is not a lot of people go there. There's, it's a vacation spot, but you need a certain clearance to go. Right. So yeah. Bernard had the clearance, which is how Lenina ended up being able to go because right. Bernard had the clearance. So Bernard's boss had um, had had the clearance as well. Right. So, you know, perfectly fine story. Certainly not going to come up again <laughs> later <laughs> on. <laughs> so they go. There's a lot of commentary, and we'll, I guess we'll sort of get into the the commentary between Bernard and and Lenina. I mean, Bernard likes Lenina. Right. But he also sort of has this, um, and particularly in the beginning of the story, he has this like sort of inner monologue about how she's like kind of like a piece of meat, and people see her that way, and she sees herself that way, and things like that. Right. That some kind of... his conditioning didn't take or something. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's it's interesting. So so they go on this vacation, and they go to the, the Savage Reservation. What right. do they see at the Savage Reservation? So at the Savage Reservation, they go visit a pueblo of of Indians, mm -hmm. just to observe their uh, rituals and stuff, and and. You know, Lena thinks it's terrible because mm. it's like all dirty and then a. <clears throat> they see women breastfeeding at one point, I think. Right. And yeah. and and yeah, then it's just awful. She hates it. And then they observe some kind of what seems like a religious ceremony. 
Mm-hmm. And with the the whipping. The whipping. The first time we see whipping. There's a lot of whipping in the story. And there's a cross. You know, yeah. th- there's some mixture of some Christianity in there. And at the end of the ceremony, this kid comes out like a like a young man mm-hmm. who's not an Indian. Right. He's he's white. He's white. He's got blonde hair. I forgot if he's blue eyes. I don't remember. He's got blonde hair though. He's got straw colored hair. And he's clearly not entirely accepted by the, the tribe. Mm-hmm. Right. And he you know, part of the ceremony was there was like young man who was being hit with a whip and to see how, how many uh how much hits. suffering he could endure. Yeah, he could endure yeah. and, and, and he said, oh, I could have done more. Yeah. And they talking to him because he's he's so white mm-hmm. and not not an Indian. And they discovered that uh, he was uh, he has a mother, which is like a dirty word in the in, in, in the world. Mm-hmm. And the mother is the girl that was lost. Yep. Her name is Linda. Yep. So they go and see Linda. Right. And I think Linda, who was the father? That's got to have been the, the, I thought it was supposed to be the guy back at the... That's right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so the, the what, what was that character's name? I get all the white guys confused. I don't remember. And the director's name. It wasn't Henry Foster. It was... No. He had some name, but... It was the other director. They... I got... Because I wasn't reading... Again, because I wasn't reading the text, I got a lot of the male characters confused with each other. But they go meet Linda. And Linda has... She was... So she was born... You know, she was from a bottle, like everyone else, in in quote-unquote civilized society. Right. And she, you know, got trapped, basically, on this reservation and was never found. Right. So she gets somehow she gets lost when she's there and she's younger and she ends up having this child. Um, well, she she lives with the Indians, right? Yeah. And there's I guess some of the backstory uh, what happened to John. So this guy named is John, mm-hmm. right? And I guess they called him Savage, John yeah. Savage. John Savage. <laughs> uh, and she taught him to read, mm-hmm. which the Indians did not read and Somewhere they found the book of all the works of Shakespeare, and that was like the only book he had to read, other than like the manual for how not to get pregnant or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he sort of makes this, this this interesting moment of growth for John because he he's growing up on this reservation. He's sort of hearing about this civilized society from his mother, and he learns to read, sort of learns language from Linda, but then finds this Shakespeare book, and Linda thinks nothing of this book of Shakespeare works like she's just like I don't understand it but she says like it, it's supposed to be really old and it must be really old because when I read it, it doesn't make any sense right and then John reads it and he he gains vocabulary from it and kind of a world view right and sort of this like these very kind of over dramatic view of the world and this over dramatic language and he has like a moment where he's like angry at something and he's finally able to express it because he's learned the words from Shakespeare. And if if John's character has one thing about it, he is overdramatic. <laughs> <laughs> he, he is an overdramatic teenager. <laughs> right, he's like 18 or something. I think he's 18. That was the uh, so the interesting part about though, you know, when, when they talk, um, there's some chapters talking about what happened to Linda and, and what happened to John. So Linda came from a society where, you know, sex was just nothing. You just had mm-hmm. sex with whoever you wanted mm-hmm. and it was normal and of course in the Indian society that was not that was traditional society where you know people got married and, right. and, and so uh, Linda was not very popular with the women no. <laughs> and she was very popular with the men mm-hmm. 
and as a result, though, John was kind of uh, an outcast. Yeah, so he is kind of between two worlds in a lot right. of ways because he's very, very loyal to his mother. Right. Uh, but also desperately wants to fit in to right. the Native American tribe that he's born into. And he, he, there's no way to reconcile that. Right. Right. There's no, there's no way to bring those two worlds together, really. And he's, that's like his struggle the whole time. Um, so there was one interesting thing that occurred twice in the in the book, which mm -hmm. I kind of want to mention. So there was one point when he's in, in living with the Indians, and he's old enough to learn some skills. Mm -hmm. And he goes, he becomes like an apprentice to somebody who makes pots from clay. Yeah. Right. So he goes and works with this this man on on clay, mm -hmm. and just the fact he says that that he was able to work and make make stuff made him super happy. That was mm -hmm. like very few times when he was very happy mm -hmm. kind of and this is something that that we talk about a lot when you have some interest a hobby and you get absorbed in your work mm -hmm. it's it's kind of a, a very pleasurable experience mm -hmm. right and that comes up later on at the very end mm -hmm. yeah with the uh, making the bow yeah yeah and that's why he makes a whip yeah well i wonder too if that's uh that's kind of the idea behind the drug soma is that right but i think it's it's what um Huxley observes, I suppose, is that that's like a, a human part of human condition is that like when when you are making something with your hands or, or with your mind, when you're creating something that's kind of absorbing and, and makes you happy. And, right, and but I think the, <clears throat> the reason it makes you happy is because you become so absorbed in it that the rest of the world falls away, right? right? And that's the the entire idea of a soma holiday. I guess yeah. is that every that it, that moment becomes eternity. Right, that's the whole point. Right, so. Huh, look at that. It's like a metaphor. <laughs> Living in the present, you know. Um, Being mindful. Be mindful. Right. Right. So he discovered mindfulness. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, so they meet Linda and poor Lena. I think we see Linda initially through Lenina's eyes, if I remember. A little bit because she got fat and, and yeah, like, she's like, like a, oh my God, she's fat. How dare she? An ugly, she, you know? old, you know. Yeah. And she's only like her 40s or something. She's not even old. Linda's not right. old. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. 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 And, but Linda's really happy to be back or to, to have Well, contact. I mean, so they decided to take them back to right, the civilization. So they, they had to get permission. And so one of the things that's happening is that Bernard was going to be sent away prior to this. Right. Bernard was having some issues with, because of his moodiness and stuff. And, and, yeah. And they were going to send him to Iceland. Right. Which is kind of like, it was still like a job, but was kind of like the way to like push him to the yeah. side. Yeah. But then he comes back with the savage. So then he comes back with the savage, right? And Linda. So Linda is happy to be back. She just goes in bed and pops like a ton of soma, and and that's that's it. But before she pops a ton of soma, who does she? Who did they bring her to see? Well, right. So this is this is what happened. Bernard wanted to, uh, I suppose, get his revenge on the director who wanted to send him away. Mm. So they bring Linda and and Savage to the hatchery, and introduce him to the director and saying. Here is your son, John Savage, yeah. and here is his mother. Yeah. And, <laughs> and she, of course, the guy just, oh my God, grabs us and runs away. He's never yeah. been seen again. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like super embarrassing. And this is actually something uh, we were talking about before the podcast, the, the words uh, father and mother, and then that scene is like sort of the, the best example. The word father is spoken, and everyone who's there starts to laugh, and they're laughing at the idea of the director being a father. It's just like so funny. Right. And then Linda says, you know, I'm his mother. And everyone reacts like very negatively, like it's like a curse word. Yeah, it's, it's, like, a a very, it's like a very dirty kind It's a of... very serious uh, curse, basically. And 
I think that's, uh, you know, a, a lot of what is going on in Brave New World has to do with um, sexism and misogyny and things like that, and that's definitely an easy example. Yeah, I mean, it's like this, the sexism that would be natural to people in those days mm -hmm. kind of comes out, even though yeah. it's supposed to be the future. Yeah. It, it, it just doesn't uh, doesn't quite go away. Right. So that that's like a good example and a good scene. So if any of you are writing like a book report on this, that's a good scene to pull. <laughs> So then what happens is, you know, so Linda goes to hospital, I guess, or like to retirement home or something. Yeah, and then she's just taking just, Soma. Just pops Soma and, and, and she's happy. And the thing, but the thing about Soma is that it shortens your lifespan. Right. Now for the regular folk of uh, Brave New World's civilized society, that's okay because everyone dies when they're like 60 or 65 or something, right? right. They're like going. Well, they have, they have like anti-aging something or other something there's nobody who looks old right. right and then but then like when there's a certain age where they like they're also they conditioned to, to expect to die and, and that's I not think, a big yeah, deal exactly but um linda linda's taking such heavy doses of soma that the doctors give her like two months like a month or two months to live a couple of months yeah. and john is kind of like what what the hell guys and they're like what she's having a good time yeah so but meanwhile um, so we have to introduce the other character, Helmholtz Walt Watson. Yes, you introduce Helmholtz Watson. Right, so Helmholtz Watson was a friend of Bernard, and he was like an alpha plus, meaning very smart. Mm -hmm. And he was writing um, scripts for the Feelies, mm -hmm. which were the movies of the day. <laughs> <laughs> which is an interesting science fiction concept, the idea right. that like, you can be watching something and... And feel what the character right. feels. So like they go to see one, for example, and someone gets kissed and, the, and John feels like the, the sensation on his lips right. and that kind of thing, yeah. But this guy, Helmholtz Watson, wants to be more. Yes. You know, writing feelies, he feels they're stupid. And so he's one of those also misfits. Mm -hmm. And even though he's more popular than Bernard or whatever, they kind of hang out together and uh, talk about stuff. Yeah. And so when John Savage arrives, basically, he moves in with uh, Bernard. Mm -hmm. And Bernard becomes like an instant celebrity. Yeah. Because everybody wants to go see the Savage. Mm -hmm. right? He takes great... He, he really wallows in that. He, yeah. He's like... He's like the guy who won the lottery, you know, and he's just throwing his money yeah. around and he's throwing mean, these parties. But John, John actually has has a thing for Lenina. So why don't you explain that? Okay, so John and Lenina, I think since she was the the first girl he met outside the right. I think John and Lenina's relationship is just so fascinating from so many angles. Um, but the way what happens with them is that the two of them simultaneously are attracted to each other. For no other, and they, they like each other for no other reason than that they are attracted to each other, right? And it's it's very Romeo and Juliet in a lot well, of ways. Well, it's also it's almost like the forbidden fruit. Like he, this is yeah. the first girl he sees from the civilized world, mm -hmm. and this is like the first man she sees that who finds attractive, who's like not like any of the other right. guys he knows. She exactly. Knows, right? Well, they're they're star-crossed lovers. <laughs> this is very Romeo and Juliet, so which I'm sure is intentional, and. I mean, the the thing about them is they have basically nothing in common with each other. They don't they don't right. really ever talk about much either. Right. Whenever they do speak to each other, it's all basically just them speaking past each other. They don't right. really understand each right. other's point of views at right. all. But they do find each other attractive, and they just don't they don't have like any capacity to act on it in any kind of. Well, right. So the, the you have to again go back to the attitudes, right? Lenina is from the society where you know everybody sleeps with everybody, and it's not a big deal. Mm -hmm. And to John being in love with somebody and and 
and become sexually active with them is a big deal. You have to be married. Yeah. Well, you have to be married yeah. or, and you have to, you know, and he also feels like he, you have to be worthy. He definitely has this complex of, of not feeling worthy. But, but so by part of it for Lenina, for example, is that she several times makes moves on John and he um, doesn't accept. He rejects it he, terribly. Multiple yeah. times, yeah. And she takes that as like a really like a personal slight. And she does not understand. Do you remember the vacuum conversation that they have? No. The, he, there's, uh, I, f I think it's after their, it may be after the Feelies date. They go on a date to the Feelies at some point. It's cute. Right. Um, but they have this conversation where she's like, she's trying to make moves on him. And he's saying, I'm not worthy of you, but I, I would do so much for you. And he says, I would even sweep the floor. And she's like, but we have vacuums. Right, that's and right. And it's like just this is completely missing each other. Completely right, not even. And right. he's like, he doesn't get her comment about vacuums. She doesn't get why he wants to sweep the floor. And it's just this like awful right, miscommunication. Right, right. And there's this, the this bad scene where he she gets undressed in front of him yeah. and he just freaks out. Yeah, he doesn't and know what to do. Just, well, I mean, he, he knows what to do, but he, he doesn't want to, you know, he doesn't think, yeah. feel he's worthy, so he gets really angry. She has to hide in the bathroom. Oh, he hits her. Yeah, that's when he hits her. That's yeah. the. I think that that's the last scene before um, Linda. Oh, Linda. Yeah. But so well before that happens, I think there's also the party. In the beginning, I think John was kind of interested in, in the society and stuff, but then mm -hmm. he's becoming more unhappy about it. He, it's interesting because he, with the way he phrases it, he says that he feels he's being, like, um, corrupted or made dirty by it. Right. Which is kind of interesting because. The he's the savage, right? right? He's the savage, and the civilized world is so clean. And one of the one of the things that's made a point of that Linda talks about and Lenina talked about is that this the savage reservation is so dirty, and the civilized uh, place is so like sanitary, clean in like a sanitary right. kind of way. But then you have these interesting moral things that are kind of to the to the modern reader are sort of flipped, where right. um, the, sec the sexuality, the sexual openness of all of the people in the civilized place like to a modern reader or even a reader especially in the 1930s would seem very like dirty whereas the more conservative sexualities of the people in the reservation right would seem normal pure yeah. right and so right. There, pure, there's like yeah. this sort of dichotomy between the two and john is right in the middle of that yeah he, he's <laughs> like he can't reconcile that stuff and yeah. uh so at one of the parties basically uh Bernard throws this huge party, right? Like he's a big celebrity. All these important people come, and John will not come out of his room. Yeah. And and it's just like, you know, they came to meet the savage, and the savage and just savage won't come out, and he come. just yells at, and and they can't get him to come out. Yeah. And eventually, everybody kind of just says, "All right, enough of this." Yeah, and although everyone feels uh, tricked and. And Bernard loses his, uh, specialness. Yeah, oh, poor, poor Bernard. Such a yeah. struggle bus. Yeah. So yeah, the party happens, and then I think that's when... That's when the scene where he... Right, so then he goes to visit Linda, right? And Linda mm -hmm. is dying. So what happens is the, the, the date where Lenina gets starts to get naked and John hits her. Right, so after... So what, what happens in that scene is kind of interesting because basically, again, because they're really not communicating with each other well, Lenina... Uh, starts to come on to John and he's saying like no and she keeps going and is kind of like trying to assault him in a way and he hits her and she's never been hit 
Right. That's, that's like, she it has happened. Right. It's like, it has, it's totally crazy. And she runs into the bathroom and hides, uh, hides from him. And then he gets a phone call that his mother is in the, not in the hospital, but is dying in like the dying in the hospice place. or something. Yeah. yeah. So he goes to see her mm. and, uh, she's still on Soma. So she's just like totally out. Yeah. But there's a kind of sad, well, interesting scene, right? So in the, the brave new world, uh, culture they want people to be acclimated to dying mm. right so in a place like a hospital where people are dying they just bring kids little kids so they can, who can play and, and just be around them right so that they and they, they bribe the children with like chocolate and stuff yeah. <laughs> to make them like have associ associate positive positive associations like right? yeah like conditioning yeah and that upsets john because he thinks it's disrespectful when these kids are trying to like run over the bed or, or mm -hmm. hide under the bed or stare at his mother right because she, she looks different from everyone right. else and he's you know he simultaneously he doesn't understand their position but they don't understand him the hospital staff are like why are you so upset right and why are yeah. you visiting yeah what's the thing and he's like this is my mother and they're like yeah uh, right <laughs> <laughs> So, I mean, pretty much Linda dies. That's right. So she dies and then he gets, I think he, when he, when she leaves the hospital, he sees a bunch of deltas kind of lining up at the end of the ship to get their little soma tablets mm -hmm. and he tries to liberate them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, John. Oh, and this is sort of like when the question starts, I mean, I guess the whole story has the question of what, what is freedom exactly? And what, I mean, we will look into that. Right. So basically he starts a riot mm -hmm. because he throws the soma out the window yeah and uh, somehow bernard and and uh, helmholtz come and help him right mm -hmm. i'm not sure exactly how they got there but they kind of get uh, in they were reacting they were called because he was making a fuss okay they were, right yeah, okay so they came and but they saw what he was doing and they kind of got into it yeah with him <laughs> so there, there's a big riot going on and so they finally get arrested yeah <laughs> i wonder what that that means that there's you have the you have John Savage and then two men from like the upper echelons of this very controlled society that are all kind of outcasts right I mean they were they were a little bit of an outcast right Bernard yeah. and Helmholtz were not as much as John, not as much yeah. as John of course but yeah they were they were different yeah and they they get dragged to Mustafa Man's office and yeah. then the philosophy lesson takes place and then the philosophy lesson I, I know you like the philosophy lesson but I don't like the philosophy right lesson. so there's a couple of things I wanted to say about that. There's my notes. You have some quotes from it, right? Yeah. There's some beautiful writing in, I will say this, there's some beautiful writing in the philosophy lesson. And I guess my, my problem with it is that I felt it was a little too heavy handed in terms of like everything Mustafa Mont's, it's just exposition, right? They're just using Mustafa, the right. author's just using Mustafa Mont as a mouthpiece for his philosophy, which is fine. But I think everything Mustafa Mont says is borne out by the story. So it's it's kind of like the story explaining to you its themes, right? When it's already kind of apparent mm. what the themes are, but right. some of the writing is really beautiful. So you right. picked some some good quotes from it, right? Right. So so he's explaining to to mostly to John, right? Saying yeah. about civilization, and he says, you know, you can't you know liberate deltas. They don't want to be liberated. They're right. deltas, right? That's that's what they were made to be. And they talk about Othello, for example, yeah. right? Because mm -hmm. he complains that there is no. Uh, you know the feelings are kind of empty and boring and mm -hmm. compared to Shakespeare and and Mustafa Mann explains to him that you know if you want stability you can't have art right or you can't have religion because you can't make flivers without steel and you can't make tragedies without social instability 
and the other quote that he says actual happiness always looks pretty squalid in comparison with the overcompensation for misery <laughs> happiness is never grand and this is when he was trying to john was trying to say why don't you write something like othello even if this old stuff is not understandable he said nobody will understand it yeah and this is our society is stable there's no tragedies there is no you know heights of emotions or whatever so right. nobody would get it and he talks about the cyprus experiment do you remember that um with the island right yeah. cyprus is an island um they put twenty thousand alphas on it to see what would happen mm -hmm. and of course they what they got like yeah. today's society where everybody's trying to kill each other right and they said after nineteen thousand of the twenty thousand that they put on the island were dead they finally say, no, no, please, can we go back? Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's sort of this interesting, um, and I guess it's kind of one of the big points in the story is, you know, what is, what is happiness? And is, is it really achievable? Well, the thing that I said here is that you cannot, you can't have happiness and truth and beauty. You can't have what? You can't have happiness and truth and beauty because, you know, truth sometimes is not very happy. Yeah. Right. Hmm. And similarly about religion, it's, a, it, it's not needed if people don't get old and suffer. You know, if you don't right. suffer anything, what's the point? It's kind of interesting. It's sort of like the same dichotomy that dystopia and utopia have, is that have, like, we're always sort of striving to do things that make us happy, but it's not really possible to achieve happiness unless there's a contrast of not happiness. Right. right. There's, there's some Chinese saying that goes like, you know, you cannot appreciate sweet until unless you taste, taste bitter. Right, exactly. No, speaking about religion, and there's something uh, I was rereading the end today, and Mustafa Man says about God, you know, so John says, do you believe there is God? Right. And Mustafa Man says, yeah, I think so, maybe. And he says, and you know, in the olden days, God demonstrated itself by being like Old Testament, Testament God with lightning and stuff. Mm -hmm. He says, nowadays, he says, demonstrates himself by being absent. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so a few more actual events happen before it ends, then we can go back and talk mm -hmm. about the, all the various things. So, John... So they all get punished, right? So the, yeah. and the Bernard and Humboldt get exiled to some islands, mm -hmm. and apparently we find out that there is many islands that have these people that don't quite fit. Yeah. And Humboldt is happy because he says, I'm just going to go be able to write at what I want, and... Mm -hmm. And Bernard says, no, no, don't send me. It wasn't, wasn't me, it was them. <laughs> <laughs> and John, John remains in England, but goes to Right, but also a goes in exile. So they, yeah. they, they set up like a place for him where he could live. Yeah, it's a lighthouse. It's an old lighthouse. Old lighthouse. And um, it's cute. He has like a garden for a bit. Right, so they give him some money so he can buy some supplies and set himself up. So he sets up a garden and... So then the incident with the arrows happens, right? So he he was a you know, living in Indian so he knew how to make bows and arrows and he was going to make those so he could hunt. Mm -hmm. And he was sitting there making the arrows and all of a sudden he realized he was in this state where he's making something and makes it made him happy. Mm -hmm. Right? And he felt that he could not be happy. He felt really guilty because Linda was dead. Because Linda was dead also wow. because of the thing with uh Lin Lenina mm -hmm. and so he said, how can I possibly feel happy? That's totally wrong. Right. So he makes a whip. Yeah. And he whips himself. And he whips himself. It's just strange. 
Well, this is, there were some monks and stuff in the Middle Ages that did that kind of stuff. John's got, John's a little, John needs like a, like a tumbler or something, like he, to get his emotions Some soma, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, he, uh, yeah. So he was, the point is, he's whipping himself and some people see him. Right, so there's some like, uh, I guess I had newspapers still. Yeah. And, and, re and reporters, I guess, they, they recorded feelies though, so you could, you know, hmm. when they recorded it, you could, the person watching would feel stuff. Yeah. So they, they saw him whipping himself, and they thought that was kind of amazing, right? Yeah. So. So like some regular folks see him whipping himself, they report it. Right. And then a few days later, news reporters just start popping up. Right. And demanding interviews with him and stuff like that, uh, and he obviously is not cool with that life. Right. <laughs> and then the whole crowd shows up, and they yell at him, "Whip yourself! Whip yourself! Yeah. Let's see the whip!" Well, because he pun you know, he kicks one of the reporters that comes. He like right. turns him around and kicks him in the butt. And so then they report on it. And so then all of these people show up in helicopters and they want to see him whip himself. They want to see him do all these things and they're demanding all this stuff. And then... Lenina shows up. Is it Lenina or is it some other blonde-haired lady? No, I think it's Lenina. Because the text does not say Lenina. It says a young woman steps out of the... the not the elevator. The helicopter. Helicopter. I, just, I thought it was Lenina. I thought it was too. They describe her mm -hmm. like looking like Lenina. Blonde hair, blue eyed, everything. But they don't say the word Lenina, so I was never quite sure if it was actually her or if it was just someone that looked like her. Because mm. it kind of works either way. Right. He has a bad reaction. To he it. has a very bad reaction. Yeah. And what does he do when he sees her? I don't know. I, I forgot. <laughs> what did he do? <laughs> I'm pretty sure he whips her. Oh, he, right. He tries right. to attack her, right? He comes at her with the whip. And I don't remember if he actually makes contact. But he like, tries to whip her, then he whips himself. And then the crowd starts singing the Orgy Porgy song. Oh, which I guess we didn't talk about. Right. Orgy Porgy is like a chant that they'll start to do before they have an orgy. And then that's what they do. And the crowd gets really riled up. Right. And they start chanting Orgy Porgy. And then the chapter kind of cuts. Right. The chapter itself doesn't cut, but like the, the text kind of cuts. Mm -hmm. And John wakes up the next morning feeling like really bad mm. about everything. So I don't know. We were we, you and I weren't. You you said you didn't think he participated in the orgy. I don't know. I don't know if the implication is that he did. I don't think he didn't. Yeah. I'm not sure, but anyway, he's clearly not able to live in his isolation. He right. they won't leave him alone. Right. And so then, what happened? Then he just commits suicide. He hangs himself. So like the reporters come the next day, mm -hmm. and it's quiet. They don't see him, and they go into the house, into the lighthouse, and they see him hanging. Yeah, they see his feet past the archway, yeah. dangling, and the, the last sentence is really nice, or nice, it's it's really artful, it was like the, describing the way the feet are turning from like north to northeast to east and then back. Alright, I'm going to read the last bit, um, the last full sentence, or last two full sentences. So they go into the lighthouse, they're calling for him, they call him Mr. Savage, and then they see uh, just under the crown of the arch dangled a pair of feet. Slowly, very slowly, like two unhurried compass needles, the feet turned towards the right. North, northeast, east, southeast, south, south-southwest. Then paused, and after a few seconds, turned as unhurriedly back towards the left. South-southwest, south, southeast, east. I yeah. think it's like a beautiful description. Yeah. So he dies. What does that mean? I don't know. Well, he clearly didn't fit into that society. He didn't fit into the 
the Indian society either, mm -hmm. so there was no place for him in the world. So it's kind of logical in the movie. So we didn't talk about this. Why is this book called Brave New World? Because Shakespeare. <laughs> <laughs> so what I love, I kind of love when authors do this at, when they, you know, clearly like a another written work, and so they put it into their own written work. So a lot of what John says all the time is references to Shakespeare. And he uses a lot of like old English words like strumpet, you know, uh, and stuff like that. He uses direct quotations all over the place. He uses direct quotations because that's, that's the only book he had to read was all the Shakespeare plays. And Brave New World is a quote from um, Tempest. Tempest. Oh, Brave New World with such people in it. He quotes that a bunch. Right. And that's when Miranda, Miranda sees, I forget the guy's name, the guy that she ends up falling in love with in the Shakespeare play. Spoiler. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when she sees him, she says, Oh, Brave New World with right. such people in it. And that's that's kind of dark in comparison to... Uh, like that, that. That's a very happy, because The Tempest is uh, one of the comedies, one of Shakespeare's comedies. Right. It's also the last <laughs> play Shakespeare ever wrote. Is it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And in... In contrast to John's experience with the Brave New World, <laughs> not being so great. Right. <laughs> it's kind of a, a dark. Well, he talks context. about Othello a lot, which is Othello actually, mm -hmm. you know, his relationship with Lenin is a little bit Othello ish as well. Mm -hmm. Right? You know, especially he wants to attack her. Yeah. It's kind of jealousy, you, you would think, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah, in a lot of ways. I think that there, there's a, certainly a very heavy Shakespeare influence on the yeah. writing generally, and both within the confines of the story like on the like the character of john and also just like on the writing as the author uh went at it um so yeah that's that's the meaning of the title and i mean the i wonder and i get that kind of ties back into our whole dystopia conversation is this is supposed to be a utopia for the characters in the story well but it's right not. so that's the question what, what what is a dystopia or why is why is this story a dystopia well I guess the question is, is it a dystopia for everyone? Is it a dystopia for Lenina? I guess not. She's... I don't think so, right. So the, one of the things about the story is the, the treatment of women is not fantastic. Right, you, you, you <laughs> can actually, now that you mentioned Lenina is a blonde. Yeah. <laughs> she yeah, takes she everything is. at face value, you know, things are as they are. Doesn't, she is that's... perfectly pneumatic. Right. right? <laughs> <laughs> one of the common phrases in the story is that when you call people perfectly pneumatic, and it just means that they're per they fit perfectly. They're perfectly what they're supposed to be. And Lenina is perfectly pneumatic. She's exactly the box. She checks every checkbox. And she's happy in this world. I think this is a utopia for Lenina. Why would it not be? So why did she fall for John? I, I mean, I think that's... It's probably just because she's... I, I, I read her attraction to John just being part of her pattern of being attracted to men and just the fact that basically right but I mean she had could any men she wanted and then she because this is the one guy who didn't want her or who did want her but wouldn't have her you know, know maybe she wasn't as pneumatic as you thought you know maybe uh, and maybe there are more shades to her than I'm giving her credit for you know that there's the I guess you know everybody else is boring after a while if it's everybody's the same and you know mm -hmm. stable uh, and here's somebody who's totally different. Right. And exactly. So, so I think for for Lenina, 
this largely would be utopia or for, for her friend Fanny, for example. Whereas, obviously, for Bernard and Hemholtz and John, right. this was by no means a utopia. Right. And that was just because they didn't fit in. Right? Right. So, is it... Is right, but I mean, it, this was a society where fitting in was super important. That was like the, the right. major thing. So, is the question, you know, does your view of whether or not it's a utopia or dystopia come from whether or not you, f you fit in to it? whether or not you're part of it. Because I think a lot of times in dystopia stories, the dystopia portion comes from not being in power. Right. So something like 1984, the but, Hunger Games. Where, so you know, look here, so power is interesting. Look what Mustafa Mann is. Was this dystopia for him or, 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 or utopia? Probably dystopia, I would say. That, well, that's what's interesting about Bernard and Hemholtz because they are, they're alphas. Right, but I mean, end. Mustafa Mand was the world controller, yeah. right? And yet he had to give something up that was important to him. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, he would wind up on the island. Yeah. So I mean, it's a why. So I guess what we're getting at is it, it seems to be coming down to. For this, for this, world, whether or not it's utopia or dystopia, it comes down to whether or not you fit in. What makes those characters not fit in? Well, Bernard was was kind of old-fashioned in the, in the way you know, mm -hmm. in the way we would think of it. He he wanted to just be with one girl, not many, right. and he wanted a particular girl. Right. right? Uh, Helmholtz was a writer who wanted to create something beyond what was allowed. You know, mm -hmm. Not stupid feelings. He wanted to to you know have emotions and and explore them. Right. Mm -hmm. I think the common thread between Mustafa Mond, Helmholtz, Bernard, and John is that they're all hyper-aware of the society that they're in. And that it's the awareness of the fact that it is so structured to be that way that makes them unhappy in it. You see what I'm saying? Like, Lenina is l much less aware of... I think John was aware either. It was For him, it was more like a gut reaction because he it was like a culture shock, really. Well, that's what I mean by aware, like, as in... <coughs> For Lenina, a lot of these things were just so ingrained in her life that right. they were just part of the fact of existence. Right. Yeah. You know, why would you sweep the floor? We have vacuums. You know, right. like this very right. like regular part part of the fabric of her existence. Right. Whereas Bernard, Hemholtz, Mustafa Mond, and John all confronted and were questioning those underlying assumptions. Okay. And that kind of so uh, Mustafa Mond kind of knew what the answers were and he's right. trying to pick he said you know this is stability is is what i want to support and mm -hmm. that's how i'm going to do it then right exactly and so it's sort of this it's kind of like this meta thing where it's like when you're when you're too aware of what you're doing to achieve happiness it no longer makes you happy so uh, in um, engineering there's a kind of a joke saying mm -hmm. that whenever you want to make something you have you can make it good cheap uh, or fast, pick any two. <laughs> and and this is kind of similar. You have art, beauty, and happiness. Mm -hmm. You know, pick any pick two. Any two. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it, it's interesting because they are all so interconnected. And I I think that it's very true that and this kind of ties into what you brought up before, with when you get really engulfed in or engulfed and when you get really engrossed in making something. Right. The allure of that is that when you get so into it you don't realize you're so into it right, right. you don't like every like the rest that, of the that's world a, that's away. a state called flow some people call flow yeah right 
And I'm like, I, like, I play a lot of video games, and like the fun of a video game is when you get so into it that you forget about everything else, and all that matters at that point is that video game. But once you realize you're playing that game, like it gets after a while, it gets boring. You play the same game. Well, but it you know, it's if you're doing creative things, like if you're writing, let's say, mm -hmm. you can get into that state too. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just using games as an example. Yeah. The point being that you know, when you get to a point where you do too much of the one thing too long, it's no longer entertaining and fun. I think I think partially from my own experience because you become aware of what you're doing. Well, so maybe one of the reasons this is a dystopia that everything is always the same it's just like you know yeah it and but mean, i mean this yeah. right so because maybe you are an alpha you know <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> if you are conditioned to uh you know like things that you do mm -hmm. and not question anything then what's the problem exactly and i think that that is reflected within the society that he's built here with the fact that you have the different cat the caste system basically right. and and Mustafa Man explains that you, that's necessary because right. you can and expect the, alphas to do epsilon work. And the vast majority of the casts are fine doing it. Right. The only people that seem to be struggling are the alphas. So what is it teaching us? That like I guess like. Don't be smart. Critical thought is bad, basically. Right? Well, yeah. In this kind yeah, of society. Yeah. So. Maybe that's why this is a dystopia. <laughs> so everyone stop thinking too hard, <laughs> and everything will be a utopia. <laughs> but I, I think that's that's. Um, I don't know if we've got quite gotten to it, but I think we're getting to like what what makes I, th I think the awareness. So then, something else you and I were talking about was um, freedom and free will, right? And why? But I know myself as a modern reader, you know, now in twenty nineteen, this was written in nineteen thirties. I wouldn't want to live in this kind of society. And initially, I thought it was a freedom issue, but it's not really freedom because, like, Lenina has lots of freedom. She can do whatever she wants it's not freedom it's free will that seems to be the issue right in the sense that what that you get to pick that 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 and, you know yeah. directed to like things you know right but i mean one could argue that that once you become a member of society it's already happening it's already happening yeah exactly and like <laughs> we were saying before one of the things uh, historically right uh, at least in the United States, there was this whole idea of individual freedom and in, you know, 18th and 19th century, you could really be, I mean, free as, as probably as a person can be, mm -hmm. you know, you get your gun, take your supplies and walk into the, the wilderness and, mm -hmm. and you're on your own. Yeah. And I was um, reading a book about the Comanches, mm -hmm. who were Indians who lived in the Great Plains and, and, and for longest for, for, for a while they were like the major tribe and most powerful one but mm -hmm. they said the way um, they lived basically that that's what was freedom you, you kind of camped somewhere you know you went hunting you hanged out and then you did whatever you wanted and then mm -hmm. went somewhere else yeah. and when industrial revolution happened and people started working uh, for living in like factories or having to have jobs to earn money and there's a reason why it's called being a wage slave yeah and at the time, like when society was changing from this kind of, you know, work where you can kind of be all on your own somewhere in the middle of the world mm -hmm. to having to work for a living, some people objected to that. Some people thought that was you were really losing your freedom. And nowadays, we don't think of it that way. Well, I think that freedom in that way, so, <clears throat> so being able to take your gun and go off into the woods is freedom when you're young and healthy. But a lot of that, you 
freedom is sort of a double-edged sword because you can, when you have more freedom in terms of more individuality and more more individual autonomy, right? You lose and you lose those connections to society. You lose a lot of things that otherwise would allow right. So, freedom. Right. So, so then, then you have something like the Comanches. So there was a tribe of people who kind of worked together, mm -hmm. but you still have a lot of freedom, and and their society was not structured as as strictly as ours. You know, so there were people who were, you know, elder, maybe more experienced and stuff, but there was no formal structures like where, where somebody was the chief and told you what to do, mm -hmm. you know. I guess one of the interesting things about human civilization generally is that we really only achieve things on a large scale when we work in mass. That's right. Whether we're working right. willingly or not. Right. <laughs> and, you know, it's we are innately social creatures. So right. the balance of freedom and individ individuality versus the collective is... I mean, look at the Borg, right? Now is a nice collective there. Yeah. <laughs> they got a lot done. <laughs> but free will is a little bit different. Free will is kind of... Freedom is just like, you know, today I feel like eating a hamburger and you go get a hamburger. Right. And there's all kinds of things that could prevent you from getting that hamburger. Your income, your access to hamburgers, your whatever. But free will is the ability to... Like pick your own destiny, not to sound too much like a Hallmark card, but right. like really to choose your well, own destiny, I mean, which is also controlled. Freedom is, is it's a little bit more than just you know deciding to have a hamburger. You know, what if you want to express an opinion that is unpopular, right? You want right. to you want to write stuff, mm -hmm. and when we I guess when we get to 1984, we'll talk which, about that. Which you know innately a lot of freedoms invoke the need for protection. You know, if you want the freedom of speech, you need the protection to know you have that right. from the people around you. Um, unless you want to go into the woods with your gun and shout at the trees, which I mean, right. you guys can. You can. can. <laughs> <laughs> so free will, I think, is sort of interesting here because this is sort of back to another story you and I read a while ago with the Weird Alien story of your life by Ted Chang. Right. And uh, that was, the, you know, the aliens who, their perception of time made them see everything at once, pretty much. Right. And not linearly. And the fact that being able to predict the future makes it impossible to have free will. Right. Because right? if the future is predetermined. Right. So in this way, in the society, by the conditioning, the future is predetermined. That's true. So like, does Lenin everybody's have, happy. And, uh, does Lenin have free will? Good question. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so I, mean, I think that's one of the big... Things. You want to talk about gender? Oh no! What what is this this thing? The Bechdel test. Yeah. Okay, so the Bechdel test is in, in any form of media, books, movies, whatever. Does your story contain two female characters who talk to each other about something other than a man? The answer in Brave New World is no. So yeah. we have failed the Bechdel test, and we fail it pretty hard. <laughs> throughout the whole story and that's that's like i said before the this book has an it's an interesting book in a sense that it's you know about future and science fiction -y kind of a thing although it's a little bit of a satire yet the the attitude of roles of the sexes that mm -hmm. existed in the 1930s just comes through it so hard oh yeah oh i think that's true probably for all the science fiction we'll see and even science fiction is being written you know nowadays 100 years from now when someone else is doing a podcast um <laughs> They'll look back and be like, wow, can you believe this? Because, it, you know, authors can be creative really only to a point. We are, uh, people are limited by, you know, what they can imagine. imagine. And 
one of the things I found interesting here, I think the story ages pretty well. I think the sexism issue is probably one of the bigger issues, but it's also kind of part of the commentary, so it kind of works. Yeah, yeah. One of the biggest things that, as a modern reader, is definitely missing is um, any kind of homosexuality, any kind of LGBT representation, particularly if the whole shtick of the society is everyone belongs to everyone else to support like the free sex kind of thing. Right. If that's true, then everyone should be pansexual. Then everyone should have, uh, or, or bisexual, right. whichever phrase, whichever way you want to put it. Because, you know, why limit yourself to 50% of the population? If, right. if we can make, if we can adjust the embryos, you know, in the embryonic stage, then just make everyone bisexual right. and then then everyone really does belong to everyone else. And that's just a reflection of 1930s. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. It's like not even something that would have crossed his mind. Right. I'm sure it crossed his mind, but it's just not something he talked about. Yeah. I mean, tons of articles have been written on gender in, in uh, Brave New World. I actually know that one of our writers over at The Fundamentals, which is the other podcast I'm on with The Fundamentals, I think it was Julia, she wrote something, she wrote an article about, specifically about gender in Brave New World. Um, I did not read it because I didn't want to steal her ideas, but I'm sure it's great. I'm going to read it when we're done with this podcast. <laughs> I mean, gender in Brave New World is super interesting. Like you were saying, the the ideas still, like the, the sort of, the, the ideas about gender and the gender roles. The, the way I think in. of it, it's like the flavor of the times yeah. le leaks through this. Yeah, exactly. And you can see that in... Some of the language, the women, you know, the women's roles in the story, and in the society, and the fact that you know Lenina turns out to be. That Mustafa Mand was a man, right? Right, like all the higher ups are that are men, and Lenina is like kind of, not. She's not exactly well, she's she's really a character. She's blonde. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. She's not, she's not really a character, she kind of becomes like a litmus test. She's kind of like more of an object of the men around her. She's like the way that she's kind of there to be something that John reacts to, to be something right. that Bernard reacts to. And she does have her own reactions to an extent, but they're not like very deep and, and yeah. profound or anything along those lines. Actually, it would be interesting to think which couples from Shakespeare they would be. So you said Romeo and Juliet, yeah. Arthur of Othello and Desdemona. Um, mm -hmm. What are the ones with famous ones? I was an English major, but I don't really remember. Yeah, I've been... Um, well, Miranda and whoever Miranda's lover is in Brave New World. Right. Maybe. That's how into Shakespeare I am. I, <laughs> don't, I like Shakespeare, I just I haven't read the plays in a long time. Oh, well, one thing I thought that was really uh -huh. well done, that still works even today, is that as a modern reader, both the savage society and the civilized society had positive and negatives for me. Right, because right. I look at the savage society and it's like, you know, uh, you know, quote unquote dirty or whatever, and like not advanced. But then there's families and there's like right. the human element. And then you look at the quote unquote civilized, and it's like cleaner and more modern. But then like no, nobody has a family, nobody has kids, nobody does anything of of import because they no, can't. No truth of beauty. Right, and I think that. That's kind of, that's a really interesting... Remember that scene was Bernard who took Lenina in a helicopter ride somewhere and they kind of hovered over the ocean, wanted to just see the ocean. Mm -hmm. And she Bernard, just yeah. like really hated it. Yeah. She's like, what are we doing? And he's like, I'm trying to live and enjoy the world. And she's like, what are we, I don't understand. <laughs> <laughs> she is a blonde. <laughs> what are we doing next? I don't know. What are we doing next? 1984? 
Yeah, what else do you want to do in terms of dystopias? 1984, we talked about maybe reading the first the first Hunger Games book, right? Right. Um, Would you watch the movie with me, too? I saw the movie. Oh, you saw the movie? Yeah. Oh, we can watch it again. Yeah. I like the first Hunger Games movie. I wanted to do Return from the Stars, which is Lemon. Okay. <laughs> but we can do it later. Uh, I've accepted my fate. <laughs> I have no free will when it comes to reading Lemon. <laughs> has been predetermined. <laughs> <laughs> and then we need a fifth one, right? We do five? What else do we need? Well, we can do Philip K. Some Philip K. Dick. Oh, God. Okay. But, um, which is a popular one, but, or Handmaiden's Tale. Oh, yeah. Which I haven't read. Maybe we should do that. I haven't read and I haven't watched the show. Uh, me, me neither. Oh, because that's a pretty modern one, right? It's pretty recent. And, uh, right. And I'm going to read uh, Ted Chiang, see if there's anything in it that's yeah. appropriate. Yeah, Ted Chiang just came out with a new book of short stories, isn't it? Yeah, it's not a book of short stories. I don't know how new it is. It's about maybe a year old. I just found it. Oh, well, recently. it's new for us. <laughs> so, yeah, so next we'll do 1984. I love 1984. Okay. I recently reread 1984, but I'll reread it again. I have an audiobook as well, so. Oh, maybe I'll do the maybe I'll do the audiobook because I know I remember all the characters in that one. <laughs> I'm gonna get confused. <laughs> the, 1984 was a book that when I was in high school, I I read it when Chris had read it. So, for for you listeners, a look into our lives. I have an older brother, and he was a few years older than me in school. So a lot of times I read stuff a little earlier because he was reading it. He get into it, and he got really into 1984. Mm. So I read it, and then when I got to it in high school, I had already read it and all these things, and I fought with my teacher about that book. Really? <laughs> oh my gosh. I want to hear about like that. Like a crazy person. <laughs> I was like screaming, like I was awful. I was really not, nobody liked me in school. <laughs> not true. But, no, but I fought with her about it, and I also taught her what the coral as a metaphor was. <laughs> <laughs> the coral and the paperweight. She had no idea. But anyway. Um, I love 1984, so that'll be a really good one. And then, uh, yeah, we can do whichever one after that you want to do. Do you, if you want to do Hunger Games, is really short. Yeah. Okay. And really poorly written, but interesting. That's fine. <laughs> so you've seen the movie, but you I've seen the movie. I haven't read the book, so it won't take you long to read. Yep. They're very similar. It's actually very good. The movie's a pretty good act mm -hmm. adaptation. Yeah. So we should we should do that because last time in our last batch we did a, a sh shorter one than a movie. Right. Okay. Well, All I right. think I think that's everything we have for this one. Um, I hope we didn't blow your mind too much. <laughs> but thanks so much for listening to and, History in Reverse. And we'll see you next time. Now it's recording. Now okay. it's recording. You want to tell me about the strange alien? Yeah, so I read this book called Diaspora by Greg Egan. Mm -hmm. And he's physicist, and he's very strange. <laughs> and, those go part and parcel. And in this book, the his characters go visit this planet that is covered by an ocean. Mm -hmm. And inside the ocean, there's a thing that looks like a carpet, but it keeps growing. Ooh. And it turns out it's a molecular computer. A what? A computer. Okay. But biological computer, right? So, and the alien, and it's running like a virtual universe. Mm -hmm. And the aliens are the things inside that universe running on this computer. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy. I love it.